Well, we're continuing our study of Matthew chapter 6. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 22 to 24 this morning, but I want to just read the whole context starting at verse 19. So Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 19. The Lord says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Throughout this gospel, and especially in this sermon, we have seen the commitment that Jesus requires of his disciples. The early chapters of the gospel showed us that who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, God in human flesh. He is God come to save his people from their sins. He is the King, and he is the King of kings. And as King, he demands our loyalty. As God, he deserves our loyalty. And those who by grace have come to recognize who He is, they devote themselves to Him. They follow Him. They learn from Him. That's what a a disciple is. It's a, a learner of Christ. And Peter and Andrew and James and John, they became examples of this discipleship in Matthew 4 and verse 18. It says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee... He saw two brothers, that is, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and followed him. Jesus demands our devotion. He demands our allegiance. He requires us to follow him. He requires us to serve him, to give up our lives for his sake, to carry the cross, to forsake everything for him and to put him first. Jesus demands our all and he deserves our all. And those two things go hand in hand. Jesus deserves our all and he demands our all. And when we recognize who Jesus is as God the Son, our Savior, we can't help but devote our lives to him. Jesus is worthy of our lives and Jesus demands our lives. See, a disciple is one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. So much so that they will even endure persecution for righteousness sake. 
And when that happens, we're to rejoice and be glad because our reward is great in heaven. You see, to live for Jesus is to live for righteousness. And I'm introducing the sermon this way because I want you to understand this, this really very basic connection that the only way that we can live for righteousness and the only way that we can live for Christ is if we view him as worthy. If we don't see the value of living for Jesus, we won't be able to follow him. And so if Jesus isn't our treasure, we will treasure something else, like treasures on earth, or not facing persecution, or even the sinful desires of our heart. We're going to have to treasure something, and so it's going to be one or the other. And if Jesus isn't our treasure, something else will fill that place. The one pushes the other out. We will either treasure earthly things and lay up treasures on earth, or we will treasure heavenly things and lay up treasures in heaven. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in verses 22 to 24, Jesus drives this principle home by way of two illustrations or two metaphors. The first metaphor is, uh, is of the eye in verses 22 and 23. And then we have the metaphor of slaves and masters in verse 24. Now, I don't know about you, but I've already found this these verses, the verses that I read this morning, quite challenging. We're to lay up treasures in heaven by serving the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're called to do and to suffer and to give up our earthly life for the Lord Jesus Christ. But now in this text, Jesus takes it even further and he really challenges us to consider not only where our treasure is, but also who or what is directing our lives. These are important questions for each of us to consider today. And it's not just important because it's about reward in heaven. No, we could make a strong case for laying up treasures in heaven. And Jesus did that already in verses 19 and 20. But here he goes beyond treasure and reward. And he he says, in effect, if you're not focused on heaven and laying up treasures there, then there's something fundamentally wrong with your discipleship. You see, this is about whether you're in darkness or whether you're in the light. This is about whether you're a slave of God or not, whether you're a slave of possessions and wealth. And Jesus is saying then that you need to choose this day whom you will serve because we cannot serve God and money. So let's look first then at the metaphor of sight in verses 22 and 23. The metaphor of sight. Now, this little metaphor gives the commentators all kinds of difficulty. And I admit at first glance it's a bit strange, but it's it's really not the most difficult interpretive issue as some claim. Verse 22 again says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, I think it'll be helpful as we kind of unpack this to to treat it a little bit like a parable and to look first at just the metaphor and see how it functions before we try to get into and understand the spiritual meaning. A metaphor is when one thing represents something else. 
When Jesus said, for example, I am the vine, we know that Jesus is not literally a vine, but, but something about a vine represents who Jesus is. That's what a metaphor is. That's a metaphor. And here, this whole lamp, eye, body, light illustration represents something. Now, what does it represent? Well, it represents something about treasure in heaven, where our hearts are, who we serve. And unless we think here that Jesus is just rambling and, and he gives a few random thoughts about lamps and lights in the middle of this section, well, obviously that's not what the Lord is doing. But again, before we try to, rep- to d- discern what it represents, let's just see what Jesus says. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. And because the eye is the lamp, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye isn't healthy, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Now let's think about this a little bit, and and then we'll go into the deeper meaning of, of some of the words. How is your eye like a lamp? And this is, this is where some of the commentators get into Greek and, and Near Eastern understandings of eyesight and light and how that works. And it, I, I just found it's just, it's not helpful at all. What does a lamp do? Just think about this. What does a lamp do? Well, it, it lights up stuff so that you can see. If it's dark and you, you're, you're, uh, you light a lamp, the room will be full of light. And if the lamp goes out, the room will be full of darkness, assuming it's dark at the time. And the same principle applies to the body and the eye. If your eye isn't working, then everything goes dark. If your eye works, then your body sees light. And the body here is the person. The the eye is the part of the body that sees light or doesn't see light. And in in, in that way, it's like... A lamp. Your eye is like a lamp. The the good eye lights up a person's vision. A bad eye means that the person can't see where they're going or what they're doing. And the eye is critical then because it affects the whole body. The whole body depends on the eye for vision. And so just like a lamp lights up a room, so your eye lights up your body. And that's how the illustration works. Now, What is Jesus' illustration? What's he illustrating here? He's not talking about eyes and lights. They represent something else. And so the question is, well, what do they represent? And I think there's two keys to interpreting these verses. The, The first one is the context before and after. And the second key is to understand the words used here for good and bad. Now, we know the context already. We spent some time in verses 19 and 20 and 20, 20, even uh, 21. We, we know the context. Treasure in heaven by serving Christ on earth. And in verse 24, we'll look at that in a little bit. No one can serve two masters. And who are the masters in the context? It's God and money or God and wealth. And so the context would point that, to the fact that this metaphor is about treasure, and it's about money and it's about possessions, either on earth or in heaven, depending on who or what we serve. That's kind of the context. The treasure, money, possessions, either either reward in heaven or our reward fully on earth, depending on who or what we serve. Now let's look at the, the important words that Jesus used, because this is the second key to interpreting this. The word translated there, healthy, 
in the ESV. If your eye is healthy, or the, it's translated clear in the New American Standard or the Legacy Standard Bible. That, that word is translated good in the New King, uh, New King James Version. Now that word is, is not a word that's typically used for the health of an eye or even the health of anything. The word, and this is from a, a dictionary here, a lexicon, the, quote, the word pertains to being motivated by singleness of purpose. Singleness of purpose. And the idea is that the person who is like this word is open and above board. In other words, this person doesn't have a hidden agenda. In another context, we would translate this word single or without guile or sincere or straightforward. But if we're talking about an eye, it doesn't make sense to translate it single or without guile or sincere or straightforward. And, and if we say, if your eye be single like the King James Version does, you might think that we're talking about a one-eyed man. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. And so the, the translators kind of say, well, 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 let's translate it healthy. But it really means singleness of purpose, without guile, sincere, open and above board. And the word takes us then towards the spiritual meaning of the illustration. We're we're talking about a person who is single in purpose, who is sincere in their religious practice. And that ties into what we've seen kind of throughout Matthew chapter 6. The disciple of Jesus is to be sincere in seeking to honor God in everything he or she does. Our first prayer, as we saw in verse 9 of chapter 6, is hallowed be your name. Jesus is saying is, is, is if you have this singleness of heart, this sincere desire to glorify God, if you're wholly devoted to please God, then you, that is your whole body, will be full of light. This is very similar to what we talked about then in Matthew 5 and verse 8 where Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And remember that word pure there meant free from other matter. A heart that's purely set on seeing God. The the heart has no mixture of other desires. There's just this desire to see the greatness and the glory of God. And that heart beat for God and for God alone. And the eye in this context is similar. It has undivided loyalty and it's focused on one thing. And what is that one thing? Well, I probably don't need to tell you if you've been kind of following this series what that one thing that this eye is focused on is. The one thing can be summarized kind of through a variety of expressions throughout the context. Matthew 6 and verse 33, it says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That would qualify as the one thing. Matthew 5 and verse 10 said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For righteousness sake. If you have the righteousness of the kingdom, then you will enter the kingdom. That kingdom belongs to you. Or maybe we could summarize it with Matthew 5 and verse 20. I tell you, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the one thing is a focus on living out the righteousness of the kingdom. But this righteousness of the kingdom comes not by our works, but by God's transforming grace. And this righteousness consists 
in being conformed into the character of God. And so Matthew 5 and verse 48 says, Therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And in Matthew 5.11, the persecution that was for righteousness' sake in verse 10 is for Jesus' sake in verse 11. And as we think about that one thing and we look into verse 24 of chapter 6, the verse we're going to cover in a little bit here, Jesus will call all of this being a slave of God or being devoted to Him or loving Him. And so a single-hearted devotion to God will result in a life of seeking to be like Him, especially as He's revealed through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The righteousness of the kingdom is to pray, hallowed be Your name on earth as it is in heaven. And all of those ideas about righteousness and seeking the kingdom and living for Jesus' sake and being devoted to Him and loving Him and even serving Him as a slave, all of these ideas of living for God's glory and for the sake of His kingdom, all of these ideas come together as the one thing that the disciple is to focus on. And so that's what the word healthy there tells us. Now let's look at the word that's translated bad. And, and most of the English translations translate that word bad. If your eye, again, we're in verse 23 then, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Now that word translated bad, it almost always refers to being morally or socially worthless. And it's translated most often in our English Bibles with the word evil. It's translated with the word bad only a handful of times when it's used of, of a tree that bears bad fruit, like Matthew 7.17, 7, or an eye that is bad in our verse, or in Revelation 16.2, it's, it's about bad sores, and the idea there is of painful sores, but, but most often this word is just translated evil, and it means to be morally or socially worthless, evil, wicked. And so it's literally, if you have an evil eye, if your eye is evil, and the combination of an evil eye is used only four times in the New Testament. One of those times is parallel, the, the parallel passage in Luke. The other one is in Matthew 20 and verse 15, and I, I want you to just go ahead and turn to Matthew 20, and we'll look at verse 15. We, we looked at this a little bit last week, I believe. This is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Verse 15 says, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And where it says there, do you begrudge my generosity... That's literally, do you have an evil eye because I am good? Now, in this parable, the, it, it, this is a parable speaking about rewards. And the guys in the parable, the, the workers in the vineyard, they grumble because they thought they deserved more. They had worked hard all day and they received the same payment as those who only worked part of the day. And the master says to them, we can look back at verse, even verse 13. The master says, friend... I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. 
Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And again, is your eye evil because I am good? And the idea of the evil eye here then is, is this idea of envy. It's wanting what others have. And it's being upset that others are ahead or that others have more. That's what an evil eye is. Envy is a, a, an ungodly attitude, uh, attitude, begrudging others good things. Now, the other place that this evil eye is used is in Mark chapter 7. And I want you to turn there as well and just see what this evil eye is all about. Mark seven twenty-two. Important passage on, on the heart. We'll start actually in verse 21. It says, For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Now, maybe you didn't see it there, but in verse 22, envy is literally an evil eye. And this evil eye of envy comes from the Old Testament where the phrase is used as well a few times. And you don't have to turn here, but uh, Proverbs 28.22 says, A stingy man hastens after wealth, and does not know that poverty will come upon him. And a stingy man there is literally a man of evil eyes, or a man of evil eye. And he he wants wealth, and he pursues it. And because of that pursuit of wealth, because his eye is on wealth, he's he's a, a stingy, envious man, and 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 he's not generous with others then. Proverbs 23 and verse 6 uses the same phrase again. Do not eat the bread of a stingy, of one who is stingy. Let me say that again. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies. And we might say, well, why? Why, why shouldn't I desire this stingy guy's delicacies? Well, verse 7 says, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. And he's inwardly calculating the cost of the meal. The, the New American Standard Bible says he's always thinking about the cost. And so don't desire his delicacies because he's not, he's not with you in this eating. He doesn't want you to eat his delicacies. He's, he's stingy. He has an evil eye and he's kind of watching the table. What are they going to eat? The opposite is in Proverbs 22 and verse 9, which says, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed. For he shares his bread with the poor. And the bountiful eye there is literally a good eye. And so this kind of all ties together, hopefully, then to show that a bad eye refers to a person who is stingy, who is greedy, and who's concerned really ultimately about laying up treasures on earth. They're focused on the things of this world rather than God and the world to come. And such a person with their bad eye will be full of darkness. Now, one more thing that I should say, and we can go back to Matthew here at this point, about, about these words, is that the word for healthy, again, going back to verse 22, that word for healthy, 
or what we said was really means single, single in focus, single in purpose. That's connected. There's a, another word that's that's closely related to this word, and that word means again very similarly. It means simplicity, sincerity, uprightness, frankness. And that word often shows up in context of money. And in, in those contexts, that same word is translated generosity or liberality. And so the idea of generosity versus stinginess is kind of both in verse 22 and in verse 23. And the idea of this generosity is just a sincere concern for others. Or a simple goodness in helping others is the idea. And so let me try to kind of summarize all of this in case you got lost somewhere in the way. So if you got lost somewhere along the way, just come on right back and let's just summarize this. A good eye is equivalent to a sincere heart, one that's focused on the glory of God and wants to honor and please him. If you have that, if you have that good eye, the whole body or the whole self will be full of light. And light, of course, is a way to speak of moral uprightness, holiness, righteousness. Light is the opposite of darkness, which represents evil and shameful behavior that's often hidden and and the idea of wickedness. A bad eye, on the other hand, contrasts with a good eye. The bad eye is focused on this world and it's stingy with others. It envies what they have on earth. And if it gives, it gives begrudgingly. And therefore, if a person is focused that way, their whole body or their whole person will be full of darkness. Now look at verse 23 again, the the last little bit there. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now remember, the eye is the lamp of a person. And if the thing that lights up your way is actually darkness and not light, then you are really in the dark. See, do you see what Jesus is saying here? If this world is what you are pursuing and living for, you are being led by darkness. You are spiritually blind. And if the thing that lights your way is actually darkness, then how great is that darkness? Brothers and sisters, what is your eye focused on? Is it single, focused on God and Jesus Christ and his kingdom and his righteousness? Or is it double? Is it focused on God and on the world? Is it focused partly on God and partly on the cares of the world and partly on the deceitfulness of riches? Is your treasure and your heart in heaven where God dwells or is it on the earth? That's the metaphor of sight. You see, whether we lay up treasures on earth or in heaven isn't, isn't just some kind of neutral decision that we can make. It's actually a matter of righteousness or wickedness. Jesus is saying either we live for the Lord or we don't. Either our sight is on Him or it isn't. You see, true righteousness is God-centered, whereas wickedness is self-centered and earth-centered. And that leads us into the next illustration or metaphor. In verse 24, Jesus speaks about serving masters. And I called this, number two then, the the matter of service. The matter of service. We saw the metaphor of sight. Now we have the matter of service. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one 
and despise the other, you cannot serve God and money. Now this verse is more straightforward than the previous two, but I think it's even more challenging. Now as we begin to kind of enter into this, have you ever worked two jobs? You don't, you don't have to answer, but maybe, maybe some of you have had two part-time jobs. When I was young, I, I worked at A&W, and there was a, a couple of ladies who worked two full-time jobs, one full-time job at A&W and another full-time job at another place. And that seemed like a lot to me at the time. It's possible to serve two bosses. You could work two jobs, and you could do well, and you could please both masters. But that's not actually what Jesus says here. I rarely give you Greek words I, 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 or Hebrew words. I just don't think it's really helpful for you. You know, if you want to spend your life preaching and teaching God's word, then I would highly recommend learning Greek and Hebrew. But other than that, I, it's not necessary. We've got great English Bibles. But I rarely give you an English word or a Greek word. But here's one that, that you should probably know. And it's the word doulos. Maybe you've heard of it before. It means slave, the word doulos. A slave in the ancient world was owned by another master. And the master had absolute right over his slaves. The the treatment of slaves varied in the ancient world from master to master. Some masters were good and kind, some not so much. But they owned their slaves and they, they they were their property. Now, it's very different than what we typically think of as slavery. There were highly regarded positions that slaves often held. And unlike how we typically think of slaves in slavery, sometimes slaves held high positions in their master's households and had even a considerable amount of freedom. Now, we obviously don't agree with owning other human beings, and the New Testament doesn't either, and I'm not going to go into that too deeply But the Old Testament and the New Testament reported it as a reality of life in this fallen world. But one amazing thing that we see is when the New Testament authors kind of picked up on this image of the slave and they applied it to the Christian. But we don't see this so much in the English translations of the Bible because when the, the translators come along and they've got this kind of modern view of, of slavery and this whole concept of slavery from the last couple hundred years, it makes the translators shy away from translating the word doulos as slave. And so most English translations just simply translate it as a servant. But this word, the, the word that, and, and the associated word in Matthew chapter 6 verse 24, no one can serve two masters. That word means to serve as a slave. Now there's significant differences, like I said, between a, a slave in the ancient Near East and one in America in 1850. But still, that word doulos means slave and not merely servant. And Paul and the apostles kind of picked up on this meaning and they applied it to themselves and to believers. See, see, we are slaves of God. For example, the apostles prayed in, in Acts 4.29, and I don't think you need to turn to these with me, but Acts 4.29, they say, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants 
to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That's the word slaves there. Grant to your slaves. They called themselves slaves of the Lord. In Acts 16, verse 17, a demon-possessed lady cried out, These men are servants, or these men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. In Titus 1 and verse 1, Paul introduced himself and he said, Paul, a doulos of God, a slave of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 5, Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ as Lord. And that word Lord there means master, and it's the same word that's used in contrast to a slave. And so Paul says, we don't proclaim ourselves, but we proclaim Jesus Christ as the Lord, as our master, and ourselves as your servants, your slaves for Jesus' sake. We are slaves to you for Jesus' sake because Jesus is our master. In Revelation 1-1, we see the word slaves used of all believers. Revelation 1-1, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his slaves the things that must soon take place. And in 1 Peter 2.16, Peter says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves of God. This is a command in the New Testament to live as slaves of God. We are free, but at the same time, We are God's slaves. We serve Him with our life. Now in our text, in Matthew 6.24, we don't have the noun, slave, doulos. We have the verb, which is closely related and, and means the same thing. It means to serve as a slave. It means, quote, to act or conduct oneself as one in total service to another. As one who is in total service to another, end quote. That same word is used in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Paul says there, they themselves report concerning us what the kind of reception we had among you and how you, the Thessalonians, turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. So the Thessalonians, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, this is a key verse on repentance, and to repent means to turn towards God and at the same time to turn away from idols. But notice that such a turning includes turning to serve, to to act as a slave to the living and true God, to be his slave. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount. That's exactly what Jesus is referring to. And Jesus called us slaves first. We are slaves of God. And I I want you to actually see this by turning to to a couple of these. I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we, we see this twice in 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians, first times chapter 6, 19 and 20. Paul says to the Corinthians, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, 
For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And what was the price of our redemption? 1 Peter 1.18 says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We were bought with the precious blood of Christ, and it's our duty and at the same time our highest privilege to serve the Lord as slaves. We are slaves and we are sons of the living God. And again in 1 Corinthians 7 and then in verse 22, Paul almost repeats himself. He says, For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant or as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he was called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with the price. Do not become bondservants. Do not become slaves of men. But notice there in verse 22, if the one who is free is, is now a bondservant of Christ. In a sense, we've been set free when we come to Christ. And in a sense, we've been made slaves of the Lord. We are his servants. We, we owe him our total lives. The Lord owns us. He bought us. He redeemed us. He paid a price for us. And Jesus is saying then by implication that his disciples belong to him and we serve him as a slave serves his master. That's what it means when we call him Lord. He is our master. We are his slaves. But we are slaves without any of those negative connotations. And we gladly get to serve the Lord. We are free slaves in that we willingly serve so great a master. We've been freed from sin and freed from slavery to sin to serve a new master and a kind master and a gracious master. And so Jesus says then in Matthew eleven twenty nine, take my yoke upon you. He says it so humbly and graciously, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That is, be a disciple of mine. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Back to Matthew 6 then. This is what Jesus meant when he said, no one can serve two masters. He means we cannot be owned by two different masters. We can't conduct ourselves in total service to two different masters. Partial service is possible. The ladies at A&W could work for A&W and whatever their other job was, and it was no problem for them, and they could please the master at A&W. But to serve God in the way that He calls us to, we cannot do this. Total service is impossible to two different masters. And note how strong the inerrant Word of God is on this. It says, no one, no one, the Lord says, not you, not me, not not him, not her, no one can serve two masters. No one is able. No one has the ability. No one has the capacity. No one has the power. No one can do this thing. No one can serve two masters. And this is especially true when the masters have opposite goals. And so let's think about this rival master called money in the text. It's literally mammon. Mammon. Mammon is a a transliteration of an Aramaic word. Uh, 
You guys do this sometimes. You know, we have, we talk about Schmanfat and Varsht. That's a transliteration. You don't, you don't translate it. You just use the, uh, Plautige, which I can't say word. You, you know, you, Schmanfat, you don't say cream gravy and sausage, although sometimes you do that. But that's a, that's a transliteration. That word transliterated from the Aramaic mammon comes from a word or, or there's some debate about this, but it, I think it seems to come from a word which means that in which one trusts. And because it's that in which one trusts, it's, it's wealth and property and possessions. And that's really the meaning of the word. Mammon means wealth, property, and possessions. And so Jesus is saying you can't serve wealth property and possessions. These two are mutually exclusive. You can trust God or you can trust wealth, property, and possessions. One of them says, lay up treasures on earth by forsaking treasures in heaven. The other says, lay up treasures in heaven by using treasures on earth. One says, have your good things now in your lifetime. The other says, have me as your good now and I will reward you with greater enjoyment of me and infinite good for forever and ever. Mammon says, I will make you happy. Money, possessions, wealth, property says, I will make you happy. I will give you enjoyment. But God says in Ecclesiastes 2.25, who can eat or who can have enjoyment apart from him, apart from God? Both God and mammon would have us as slaves. Both God and mammon demand our service. Both God and mammon require our time and our talents and our resources. They both want our love. They both want our devotion. They both want our trust, our appreciation, our esteem, and ultimately they want our lives and our worship. They both want our attention and our service. They both want to light our way if we go back to the metaphor of the eye. They both want to be the light of our life and lead us, our whole self. But we can only have one or the other as our master. One is infinitely valuable and eternal. One is temporarily valuable. We could say limitedly valuable and temporal or transient. It's okay to have wealth, but we cannot live for it. We cannot serve it. And we cannot worship it. And what's so dangerous about money is that it kind of sneaks up on us and we think that we possess it and maybe at first we do, but gradually it begins to possess us. And we begin to live according to its dictates and it, it becomes our master. And it guides and directs every aspect of our lives. And soon we find as it creeps up on us that all of our time and our talents and our resources go towards getting and keeping and caring for our wealth, our property and our possessions. And little or nothing goes towards laying up treasure in heaven. Nothing is left to seek first the kingdom and righteousness of God because we find the demands of seeking mammon too great. Brothers and sisters of Grace Bible Fellowship, we can only be slave to one master. 
Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And because these potential masters are opposite of each other, when we pursue the one, we naturally turn away from the other. Love and hate are opposite terms. Remember when Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah? Genesis 29 verse 30 says, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Verse 31 says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. And so Jacob loves Rachel more, but the Lord sees it as hatred. There's this opposite there. And so if we love God, we will seem to hate mammon. And again, we may have wealth, but we will use it for God's glory and we will not use it for selfish gain. If we love money, we will seem to hate God. We will love Him less. We will serve Him less. And similarly, we will be devoted to one and loyal to one and the other will be neglected. The other will be despised. The other will be looked down on. That's what these words mean, to to despise. The other will be thought lightly of. You will be devoted to the one and you will despise the other. Neglect, despise, look down on, think lightly of. If we love money, we will think lightly of God by our lives, the way that we live. We will show that God isn't very important. God isn't very worthy of our lives when we live for money. And so GBF, the Grace Bible Fellowship, the metaphor of sight and the matter of service teach us to ask ourselves where our treasure is. If God is not your treasure, your heart will be set on treasures that will disappear at death. If God is not your treasure, your heart will be set on things that will lead you into darkness. And if God is not your treasure, you will be a slave to your property and possessions. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this would not be true of any of us. And we recognize, at least in our our minds and hearts, that you are worthy of our very lives and our all. You have told us to seek first your righteousness and your kingdom. You have told us to pray first, hallowed be your name. You have taught us to live, to glorify you, to show your greatness and your, your grandeur to those around us. Father, we pray that we would be your slaves and that as such we would Or by that means, by loving you and living for you, by being devoted to you, that we would not serve mammon and that we would lay up our treasures in heaven and that our lives would be a light to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.